Galatians chapter 3 and verses 15 through uh, 20. So we are, uh, hold on one second. So we are uh, got two more weeks um, in Galatians, and um, if I can get this working, there we go. So we're gonna we're gonna spend two weeks to answer this question: Why then the law? In other words, if if faith is is being a child of Abraham, uh, being a child of God is is by faith and faith alone. Then why did God give the law? What's the purpose of the law? Paul's going to explain that uh, in the rest of chapter 3. It's going to take us two weeks to go through that. So before we get started, let's go back and real quickly and follow uh, Paul's line of thought up to this point in chapter 3. So in verses 1 through 5, Paul makes it clear that if you receive the Spirit of God through faith and not through works of the law, then that's how you have to continue in the Christian walk. You don't get saved by faith. And then walk out of the church and say, okay, God, you did your part. I'll take care of it from here on. If you receive the Spirit by faith, you keep the Spirit through faith. You, you walk in the Christian life through faith. So he made that clear in verses 1 through 5. In verses 6 through 9, Paul supports that further by talking about Abraham. That, that uh, Abraham uh, was obviously the father of, of us, of many nations, and he showed us that the only way to be a child of Abraham is through the faith Abraham had. And then in verses 10 through 14, Paul says that if you insist on taking the law, uh, rules, regulations, morals, ethics, all of that, and you try to use that as a ladder to make your way to heaven, then Paul says instead of being blessed, you're the opposite of that. You're under a curse. That's called legalism. So if you try to use laws, rules, regulations, good behavior to get to heaven... Paul says you're a legalist and you're under a curse. So, in, in, in other words, in all three paragraphs, the message is exactly the same. You can't grow as a Christian. You can't become a, a child of Abraham. You can't enjoy the promise of the Spirit if you're living by works instead of by faith. And so Paul is trying to do everything he can to make sure the Galatian church, and us, by the way, uh, understands uh, this. Okay, so... Now, that all sounds good, right, and true, because it is. But the Jews don't give up that easy. They've got one argument that they have based everything on, and it, and it is this. So imagine the Jews. Now, by the way, remember what we talked about earlier? When Paul travels into a city, what's the first thing he does? He goes to the synagogue. He goes into the marketplace. He starts debating with people. So he's heard every argument. He's heard every question. He's heard everything. So a lot of times when we hear, see Paul writing, he's answering arguments that he's already heard. He knows what they're thinking. So imagine the Jews saying this to Paul. Paul, we just don't agree with what you're saying. Let, they said, we'll grant you your point that Abraham started by faith. But there's one itsy-bitsy little point, Paul, that you keep overlooking, and that is this. There is no way you can escape the fact that 430 years after Abraham, okay, God thought it necessary to give the law through Moses. So, so in other words, Paul, if inheritance comes only by faith, then why did God give us the law? Okay? Isn't it obvious that the law with its 600 plus commandments teaches us that we must add works to our original faith? I mean, if it doesn't teach that, what else does it teach? In fact... The Jews could be saying, when we tell Galatians 
who began with faith that they have to be made perfect by works, we're just doing what God did. In other words, that's what God did. This is what the Jews are saying. Yes, Abraham started by faith. The Israelite people started by faith, but then God gave us the law. Wasn't he telling us that you begin by faith, but you have to continue by works? Now that, by the way, is an excellent argument. Now let's do a little bit of history here, just so we know when, uh, what, when we say 430 years what we're talking about. <clears throat> so everybody knows the story of Abraham, right? God chose Abraham out of the land of Ur, I believe. Uh, took, took him over to Canaan. Uh, Abraham had a, a, a son. His name was Isaac. Uh, Isaac had another son. His name was Jacob. Jacob had how many sons? Twelve. He had 12 of them, one of which was Joseph. Joseph, obviously, remember the coat of many colors and all of that? He sold into slavery into Egypt. So they all go to Egypt, and when they get there, um, they end up being staying there a long time. They become very many people. The, the Egyptians begin to think, man, they're going to take us over, so they enslave them. So all of uh, Jacob's uh, all of Abraham's and Isaac's and Jacob's ancestors become enslaved in Egypt. After a long time, uh, God raises up Moses. We all know his story. And finally, he leads the people out. And when they come to Mount Sinai, he goes up on the mountain and God gives him the law. Okay, That, by the way, took 430 years to happen. So when you see Paul talk about 430 years, that's what he's talking about. It was 430 years from Abraham to when the law was given at Mount Sinai. So, the Jews make a good point. If the blessings of Abraham come by faith, then why in the world was the law given? What was the point of, of the law? In fact, we'll find out today, if I ask not 10 Christians, what's the point of the law? <coughs> Nine out of 10 of them will get it completely wrong. And I'll, we'll talk about that here in, in just a second. Now, Beginning with verse 19, that is exactly the question Paul's going to answer. In verse 19, he says, why then the law? He's going to answer that question in verse 19. If we receive the inheritance by faith, then what purpose does the law serve? By the way, we have the same question today. If we live by faith, if, if salvation is by grace, then what purpose does the New, command, the New Testament serve? When he says, you know, love one another, admonish one another, don't everybody with me we got the same kind of, of commands of God today that they had then we have the same question today what 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 is the purpose of God's ordinances what is the purpose of God's commands now that was a, a perfectly valid question and one that Paul's going to answer in verse 19 now remember Paul is trained as a lawyer okay this is his training as a young man so like any good lawyer this is what he's going to do before he gives his own argument He's going to address the other guy's argument. Think about it this way. If you've got two people in a courtroom and one stands up and says he did it, the other one stands up and says he did it, and the, the, the jury's just left with, well, that was a good argument, right? That was a good argument. So if you're a good lawyer, the first thing you do before you give your argument is you tear down the other guy's. You say, look, not only is mine true, his can't be true. Everybody with me? That's exactly what Paul's going to do. Before giving the correct reason why the law was given... He first needs to address the Judaizers' argument, and which he's going to do in verses 15 through 18. So let's, let's read that. We'll start in verses 15 through 18. Paul says this, To give a human example, brothers and sisters, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. 
This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Because if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Okay, let's, let's kind of walk through this and see what he's saying. He starts out with an analogy in verse 15. He says, To give a human example, brothers and sisters, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, to us in modern times, this sounds not quite right, right? Because we know people, we hear stories uh, about people who have wheels, right? And then they go back and write their kid out of the wheel, right? And then they go back and put the kid back in the wheel. In other words, our wheels and, and, and contracts can be modified and changed. Everybody with me? But there were Roman and Greek and Jewish laws under which that statement would have been exactly right. That there were certain contracts and oaths that you could once you signed them, they could not be changed or modified in, in any way. So what's important to understand here is that's what Paul is saying, is there are certain kind of testaments, covenants, contracts, agreements, <coughs> oaths, which cannot be canceled or changed. Now, what Paul is saying is that God's covenant with Abraham is one of those. It's one of those covenants, one of those agreements or contracts that you cannot change. In other words, when God makes a promise, He does what? He keeps it. That's, it. That's who He is. That's His nature. He doesn't come back later and annul it. So let's think about this. Imagine a father sitting down at the breakfast table with his children one morning, and uh, he's just feeling good, I guess, and he says, okay, kids, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna, I, because I love you guys so much, I'm going to take you, and in six weeks, we're going to go to Disney World. And we're going to go, and you can have all the food you want. You can ride everything you want to ride. We'll buy souvenirs. We're just going to have a, a great time. And, of course, the kids say, you promise? You know how kids are, right? You promise? And he says, I promise, right? And, of course, the kids, they love their dad. He's dependable. Uh, that He's never broken a promise before. You can imagine they're pretty excited, right? They've got a lot of hope. They've got a lot of expectation of going to Disney World. Now, what, if, what happens if in two weeks the father comes into breakfast one morning and says, Kids, um, I want to make a deal with you. If you clean up your rooms, and if you do all your homework, and if your grades come in in, in, in in about three weeks, if your grades come in and you make all A's and B's, if you do all those kings, and you do all the chores I've prepared for you, then I'll take you to Disney World. Now, let me ask you, what would be the children's response They wouldn't be too happy, would they? In fact, the, most kids would say, but you promised, promise, right? In fact, what would you think about the dad? Not much. Not, not much. He's, not, Indian <laughs> he, he's not a man of his word, is he? He's not a man of integrity. Listen, a promise is supposed to be a promise, right? Come back later with negotiated performance requirements, that's something completely different. By the way, even a child knows that, right? Even a child knows a promise is a promise. When God makes a promise, he's not like that dad. That's what Paul's saying. He's not like men who can come back and change. No, when he makes a promise, he says this is the way it is. God doesn't come back later and say, you know what, guys, I I'm going to change it up here. Okay, so that's not who he is. So this is what Paul's saying. When God makes a promise, he, he keeps it. Now, as I was writing that down, I thought this. I thought about this. Well, what about the New Testament? Doesn't the old? By the word, the word testament means covenant, right? 
So we have the old covenant, and then we have the new, new covenant. So now, and I thought about, well, now wait a minute. If God doesn't, if, if God made a covenant and he doesn't change it or annul it, then what about the New Testament? In fact, Jesus says, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is a new agreement. So I thought, well, now wait a minute. How can I say God doesn't change something if we have a new covenant? Now that's a good question, okay? And by the way, let's see if Paul addresses that, that very question. So let's look at verse 16. Paul says this, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. All right, now what I want you to see this is here. God made a covenant with Abraham. It's a binding agreement, by the way, between him and Abraham. And he, and he promised him the blessings of God. But Paul says he also made this agreement to Abraham's offspring. In other words, Abraham, you're a man of faith. I'm going to bless you because you're a man of faith. To his offspring, he says... You're men of faith. I'm going to bless you. Everybody with me? In other words, the promise was made to Abraham. The promise is made to his offspring. Now, who are these offspring? Well, we talked about this last week. Is it every genetic descendant? No. Remember Genesis 21, 12. By the way, Abraham had two sons, right? Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac was not the firstborn. Ishmael was. Um, and and, and, and uh, Abraham was torn about this. Right? He didn't know what to do. And so in Genesis 21, 12, God says to Abraham, Do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac your offspring shall be, what? Named. So he tells us Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, but it is only through Isaac that his offspring is going to be named. When he says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, I'm going to bless your offspring, he's not talking about the offspring of Ishmael, he's talking about the offspring of who? Of Isaac, who is the the Jews? Okay, that's all the Jews. So, is the off is is the offspring of Abraham that Paul is talking about every descendant of Isaac? No, because remember Jesus, the Jews, who by the way are the descendants of Isaac, told Jesus one day, Abraham is our father. Jesus says, if you were Abraham's offspring, you would be doing the works Abraham did. In Romans nine six through seven, Paul says, not all who are born into the nation of Israel, which is Isaac's descendants, are truly members of God's people. Being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. So not all Jews are, were the offspring of Abraham either. So who are the offspring of Abraham? Paul tells us in Galatians 3, 7, Know then it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And by the way, faith in who or what? But you know how important that is? There's a lot of people out here who's got faith. you got faith in Muhammad. you got faith in Buddha. They got faith in themselves. They got faith in a higher power. Everybody with me? It's not, you can't, faith is not enough. It's faith in who? See, Galatians 3.29, Paul says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. So we have to have faith in Christ. So the offspring of Abraham comes through Christ. Everybody with me? All right, now, let's go back and look at what he said. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many but referring to one who is Christ. Paul is saying that when you understand the word offspring in the Old Testament and you see that it represents a limited offspring, not all the descendants of Abraham, and then you learn from other scripture that there's a Messiah coming who will be the offspring of Abraham and fulfill the promises, then Paul says it's fitting to say that God's promise to the offspring of Abraham must refer 
in a unique and special way to Christ. Okay? So when he says he made the promises to Abraham and to his offspring, he's saying he made the promises to Abraham and to Christ. Everybody with me? That's what he's saying. Now here's where we are at this point. God made a binding, unchangeable covenant with Abraham. He promised blessings, justification, eternal life, salvation, the Holy Spirit to his offspring. But he also made the same promises to Abraham's offspring, which is Christ. That he would bless all people in Christ, people who put their faith in him in the same way. Now here, we ask the question, what about the New Testament covenant? Isn't that a change or an annulment of the Old Testament? No. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to what? Accomplish their purpose, to fulfill them. You see, the new covenant isn't an annulment or a modification of the old one. It's a fulfillment of it. It's like the Old Testament covenant was step one. The New Testament is just step two. You just step right into it. See, the fact is... um, Christ is the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. Everybody with me? The promises made to Abraham, God always looked ahead and said, I'm going to fulfill those promises through my son. So it's not an annulment. It's not a modification. That's what Christ, uh, Abraham, I mean, God intended for Abraham all along. So the main point of verse 16 is that the promised inheritance, justification, Holy Spirit, salvation, comes only by Jesus Christ. Now, had God... So everybody with me, when God promised Abraham, I'm going to bless you and your offspring, he was looking down the road and saying, one day I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bless your offspring, and I'm going to do it through Christ because they have faith. That was the intention all along. Okay? Now, had God then turned around 430 years later and said, oh, here's a law, this is how you get right with God, don't you see his integrity would have been jeopardized? Okay? If in the law, God was telling men to earn their way to blessings, then the covenant with Abraham would have been null and void, right? There would have been no need for Christ. It makes no, Paul's laying this out because it makes no sense. Paul says you cannot have your cake and eat it too. It has to be one or the other. It has to be the promise or it has to be the law. Look at verses 17 through 18. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Because if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. All right. So let me sum this up in English. Paul, the Jews say, all right, Paul, let's assume that God began his dealings with Israel by making a promise and calling for faith. But you can't deny that 430 years later, he thought it needful to lay down the law for Israel. And the most natural thing to assume is that even if you do begin your faith uh, with a promise, that person will then be completed and perfected by engaging their own will and their own effort to keep the law and show themselves worthy of the promised inheritance. Having begun by the Spirit, you have to be completed by the flesh. That's the argument of the Jews. Paul says this. No, he says there are unalterable paths. He says, uh, one of which God made with Abraham. The agreement was that the inheritance of salvation would come not to all of Abraham's descendants, but to the seed, which is ultimately the Christ, and all who are in him. If you don't have a Christ, you don't have an inheritance. Given the nature of God and his covenants, no later stipulation could annul it 
or void the promise of this covenant. So that's what Paul's saying. Therefore, in the law, which was given 430 years later, God is not putting the inheritance on a new basis. He's not saying, once I taught you to trust me, now I teach you to work for me. Once I taught you to rely on grace, now I'm teaching you to earn merit. No, God does not contradict himself in that way. That's all Paul's saying. God does not contradict himself. He, he said at the beginning, it's going to be by faith. That faith is going to come through the, your offspring, which is Christ. That was the plan all along. 430 years later, God didn't say, hey, you know what, I changed my mind. Let's do it another way. That, that was never the point. Now, that raises the question then, okay? Then what is the point? Why was the law given? Okay, again, that's exactly what Paul is going to answer. Why the law? What is its purpose? Okay, so let's read it. Galatians 3, 19 through 20. Why then the law, Paul says. Now, he's going to give us two reasons for the law. One we're going to cover this week. One we're going to cover next week. It says this. It was added because of sin or transgressions until the offspring should come to who the promise has been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one but God is one. Now let me go back and say something here. If I ask most Christians why do you think the law was given to Israel? Okay, My guess would be 9 out of 10 Christians would say so they wouldn't sin. That's what most people would say. You give them the law so they don't sin. But what Paul's going to tell us today is the exact opposite is true. It was never intended to keep them from sinning. Okay? And I'll leave you hanging with that one for just a second. You'll see that here in just a minute. Lord Alfred Tennyson, y'all all, there's a, he wrote a poem years ago called The Charge of the Light Brigade. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a, I don't read poetry, I don't care anything about it. But you've all heard this probably somewhere throughout your life. Part of his poem says this, Theirs is not to make reply, theirs is not to reason why, theirs is but to do and die. Anybody, y'all heard that before? Somewhere along the line. That's, that's Tennyson, The Charge of the Light Brigade. Now, when it comes to the Bible... Many Christians are tempted to live like that. That not everybody cares why. We're sitting here today saying, why did God give a law to this little nation of people 6,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago or whatever the case may be, right? What has it got to do with us today? Why should we even care? So you can imagine somebody saying, look, Derek, you know, I, this, this really doesn't matter. Uh, it, it, it's just, it just is what it is. Let's make the most of it. In other words, ours is not to reason why. But the fact is, many in Israel in that day had the same attitude, and they perished because of it. Look what Paul says in Romans 9.32. He says why. He's talking about why did they perish? Because they did not pursue righteousness by faith, but as it were based on works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. The reason, by the way, guys... The reason he's saying they stumbled into destruction wasn't that they didn't pursue the law. Everybody with me? They pursued the law. They stumbled into destruction because they did it the wrong way. They never asked why. What's the purpose of this law? They just thought, oh, we're going to make a ladder to get to heaven. In other words, their moral effort became a mortal sin. In many areas of our life, we have to ask why, right? If you don't know why the traffic light is red... Guess what could happen? 
You might die. If you don't ask why there's a skull and crossbones on that uh, little medicine bottle, you might die. Let me tell you, that includes the law of God. If you don't know why this word is sitting here, it can kill you. Okay? If you don't ask why the law of God and you go after it the wrong way, you say, I'm going to read this and man, I'm going to do everything it says and I'm going to build a ladder and I'm going to make, I'm going to, I'm going to get to God. I'm going to prove myself a good person. Guess what? It'll kill you. By the way, I don't just say that. Paul says that. He says, the letter, what? Kills, but the Spirit gives life. See, the letter, the words on this page, if you don't ask why, why are they there? It'll kill you. Okay, so we have to ask why. That's very important. Um, Rudyard Kipling, I threw out one poem. I, I show how um, intelligent I am by doing another one. Uh, Rudyard Kipling did one called The Elephant's Child. Uh, th- this is a pretty good one. I had to write this one down. He said this, I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. In other words, he's saying ask questions. Be inquisitive. Ask why, where, when, how, and who. By the way, in a, in a universe created by a personal God who does all things according to His purpose, the two most important of those six serving men are who and why. Who wrote the law? Who gave the law? Now, we know the answer to that question, right? We know that was God. So the question we have to ask is, why? Why did He do it? Why did he give us commands like that? Now, as I mentioned, Paul's going to give us two answers as to why the law was given. We're going to only cover one today, which is found in verse 19. He said this, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. That's another word for sin. It was added because of sin. Now, again, that's a little bit ambiguous. Because if you just read that and say it was added because of sin, what does that mean? <coughs> you, you could take that to mean he added it because people were sinning, right? And he gave them the law so that they would quit sinning, so they would know what to do. Okay, But that's not what Paul says. That's not, actually not even what he, what he means at all. So again, that could be a little unclear, so we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. We know that law that Paul doesn't mean so that they would not sin. In fact, when he says it was given because of men, he actually means so that the law would produce or increase sin. Which is crazy, isn't it? Most of us think, well, he gave them the law so they wouldn't sin. Paul says, no, Romans 5.20, the law came in to in what? What does it say? Increase the sin. Okay? He didn't give it to stop them from sinning. The Bible says it came in to increase the sin. Okay? Now, how does the law do that? Somebody tell me. If you were if you're here in our Roman study, you should know the answer to this. Why does a law increase sin instead of stopping it? It tells you what sin is. Okay, it tells you what sin is. That's good. Okay? So in other words, you might have been doing something you didn't know was sin. And all of a sudden the law says don't, don't, oh, that's sin. So you're like, oh, okay, well now, now I know. Why else would it increase sin? It would eventually define the difference between good and bad and right and wrong. Okay. And ungodly and godly. Okay. Again, it's, it's defining it, revealing it. That's good. And that's part of it. 
But it doesn't just define it and reveal it, it increases it. it in other words, it makes people sin more. Why? Listen, you all have kids. You all have kids. Put a put a put a put a, a, a cookie jar and tell your kid whatever you do, do not look in that cookie jar. What is that going to do? They're going to make them look in the cookie jar. By the way, in the garden, he says you can have all you want, whatever you do, just not that one tree. And what did they do? They did that. See? He gave the law. He says, okay, whatever you do, don't do it. Knowing, guess what? They're going to do it. He knew that when he gave it. He knew that when he created it. Okay? So, let's move on. Number one, you said it exactly right. What's the purpose of the law? What does Paul mean by that? It came because of sin. Number one, it reveals sin as sin. Okay, this is what we, y'all, most of y'all said. Romans 4, 15. The law brings wrath, but where there's no law, there's no sin. Let me explain what he means by this with a simple analogy. Let's say you have a doctor that you've been going to. You're on an HMO or something. You've got to sign this doctor. And you've been going to him for a while, but you don't really, you don't really trust him. Okay? He's like 24 years old, and you just think, man, this, this kid has no idea what he's talking about. So in your heart, you don't trust this doctor. Everybody with me? Now, you go in for a checkup every year. Everything's fine. He says, you're, yeah, you're good to go. Everything's fine. So what happens is year after year after year, there's no problem. You don't trust him, but he doesn't know that. Nobody around you knows that. It's just something that's in your heart. Well, then one day you go in and something's wrong. And so he makes a diagnosis and he gives you a prescription. Here, this is the prescription. But because you don't trust him, you walk out of that office and you take that prescription and you throw it in the trash. Okay? Now, you've always distrusted your doctor in your heart, but that distrust doesn't become visible until he tells you to do something. Everybody kind of getting the analogy here? In other words, the prescription makes a visible sin or transgression out of the rebellion that was always sitting there that nobody knew about. Okay? You had no reason to act on it because everything, he never told you what to do anything. Everything was fine. But all of a sudden, one day he tells you to do something and that rebellion, that distrust that was inside becomes alive. And it, and it, and it uh, acts out by throwing away that prescription. So when Paul says in Galatians 3.19, the law was added because of sin, he, he, what he means is it functions like a doctor's prescription to show who trusts the doctor and who doesn't. Okay? By prescribing the obedience of faith, the law turns a, a hidden sin of distrust and rebellion into the open sin of disobedience. It was always there, right? But you never acted on it until the law was given. Once the law was given, you're like, no, nah, no, nah, I don't trust you. I don't think you know what you're talking about. I know better. And it, everybody with me? So it comes out. Now, that's, so that's the first thing it reveals sin as sin. Okay? Because now you've got a set of commands you're supposed to follow. The second thing it does, and this is, where, this is where most people don't go, is that it stirs up more sin. In other words, it doesn't, it doesn't dissipate sin. It actually stirs more up. Okay? Look what Paul says in Romans 5.20. Now the law came in to, read those three words for me, increase, increase the sin. 
The law came in to increase the sin. What happens is that the rebellion and insubordination and distrust of the human heart intensifies and expands when it meets the law. Okay? This is clear, by the way, from several passages. Look at Romans 7, 5. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, look at those words, aroused by the law, were at work in our members. You see, the sinful inclinations of the heart aren't just revealed. It says they're aroused. Okay? It's like, let me explain. what We did this example back in Romans. And by the way, here's why. Apart from the Holy Spirit, our hearts are utterly self-centered. It's all about us. And when that heart comes into contact with some authority that uh, tells it what to do, right, or, or calls it into question or criticizes that heart, by the way, the heart will seek all the more fiercely to defend itself, right? So instead of turning people to God, the law increases sin by stirring up even more self-assertion and by increasing people in their self-alliance. You see that? This is the example we use. It's like, some of y'all in the Roman study will remember this. It's like a teenager. He goes to the mailbox to get the mail, right? So he takes the mail back into a house. He flips through it. He doesn't see anything, and he throws it down on the counter. And when it falls down on the counter, one of the letters pops out, and he sees these words on the letter, for parents' eyes only. See, he's starting to walk away. Now nothing there. And he sees the words for parents' eyes only. And what do you think? He's, he stops. <laughs> right? What's going on? By the words, are those words sinful? Is there anything wrong with those words? No. But see, what happens, suddenly there's a desire to read the card. Again, are the words sinful? No. But sin took an opportunity through those words to awaken something that was already in that child. See, that rebellion, that distrust, that self-assertion that was laying there dormant, asleep. When the word said, don't do that, something says, are you telling me what to do? I'll show you. Right? It, it was already there. But it doesn't come alive until the word says, don't do it. Okay? So what was lying dormant in the heart is shown really to be there. Desire to read what you ought not to read. The desire to disobey. The desire to rebel. It's already sitting there. And when the word comes, those desires become actions. Okay? That's what he means by that. So when tested, tempted, or challenged, that's when the problem comes in. When, when your heart... It, again, think about it. Apart from the Spirit of God, your heart is all about... It's self-absorbed. I'm the, what's the, the, the other poem, I hadn't read it years, but it's called The Master of My Own Ship. I'm the master of my own ship, the master of my own domain, right? I, I know what's best for me. Nobody tells me what to do. It's in every child, right? You, you got to beat it out of them, right? That, that's just already there, right? So, so it, it's there. And so when the law comes... When the law comes, it, 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 it just, it, it rises, everything in that child rises up against it. Just do a test. Tell, tell a small child, don't do that. Don't do that. See what they try to do. Yeah, we'll talk about that next week. We've said that before. Draw a line, and every child there will get 
just as close to that line as they can. You know, if you say, do that and I'll do this, well, they'll test you. They want to see, do you really mean you'll do it? That's why I tell every parent, if you say you're going to do it, you better do it. Because the first minute you don't do it, you just told that child, oh, he can go a step further and a step further. If you say you're going to do it, you better follow up quickly and teach them a lesson that when you say don't cross that line, you mean don't cross that line. Because if you don't, you're, it's gone. And by the way, the law, that, that, that switch or that hand, or if you don't believe in that, whatever your discipline is, it's exactly what the law's doing. It's corralling kids. It's restraining them. That's what we do. That's our job until they're old enough to do things, they're mature enough to make good decisions. We'll see that next week. All right. By the way, so is the law sinful? I mean, here comes this thing that increases sin. So the question arises, well, maybe the law is sinful. Watch what Paul says in Romans 7, 7 through 8. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. I would have not known covetousness unless the law said, you shall not covet. Everybody see what he's saying there? I, I, I had this thing inside of me that I wanted what everybody else had. I didn't know what that was. And all of a sudden, God gave me a law and says, you shall not covet. And all of a sudden, I knew that what that thing was. Sin became sinful. It revealed what it was. Um, but by the way, instead of tamping it down, it just made it even worse. Because <laughs> now I thought, well, I, I, you may tell me, and nobody tells me what to do, right? So it says, sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, <coughs> produced in me all manner of evil desire. Just like the kid with the letter. The commandment produced in him the, the desire to rebel, the desire to disobey. Here's the deal. Everywhere the law meets a heart that does not have the Spirit of God. Now, I want you to read this very carefully. It awakens resistance, not faith. Rules and regulations, even in the New Testament, all of those things in the New Testament, they never awaken faith. They awaken resistance. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, that doesn't awaken faith it awakens resistance well i'll show you i believe i can get there by being a good person i believe i can get there through islam or some other religion okay it never awakens faith that that was never its point the law cannot overcome sin it can only reveal sin by bringing it out and making it known it can never make you right with god it can only condemn you before god in other words the law is like an x-ray machine it's diagnostic, but it can't cure anything. An x-ray machine has its place, right? You can take an x-ray of your leg and say, yes, it's broken. But after that, the x-ray machine can't do anything to make it. It exposes, but it can't heal. It accuses, but it cannot pardon. It just shows us what's wrong. That's all it does. It has, no, it has nothing in it that's, that heals a person or makes a person right or, or anything like that. That's what Paul's... Paul's talking about. So this is the first reason the law was given. It was added because of transgression. In other words, the law does two things. It reveals sin and it intensifies sin. By the way, Romans 7.13 says exactly that. Listen to this. Did that which is good... By the way, the law is good. Paul's saying that. Did that which is good bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. And here's the point. 
in order that sin might be shown to be sin, there's the revealing, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, there's the increasing. So the law not only reveals sin, it increases sin in a person's heart. Okay, so that's what Paul, that's uh, the two reasons that Paul gives us, I mean, the, the one reason kind of in, in two ways that Paul gives us. Now, next week, we're going to look at the second reason the law was given. And uh, we're going to cover the rest. But before we do, i got to cover this. Now, <laughs> Okay, I was talking to Henry this week, and he was telling me something, and he's exactly right. He's been going through uh, 1 John, right? And the thing about it, when you go through a book of the Bible, one of the nice things about it, or the hard things about it, is you can't skip anything, right? You come to a verse. I mean, how would it look if I was teaching through and I come to three verses and just one day I skipped them? You'd be like, well, now, wait a minute. What, what, what's wrong with those verses? Are you too dumb to understand them? I mean, what's the deal? What's going on? So here's one here that is really, really hard, okay? Now, so what? I, before we get to the other reason next week, i got to cover these couple things in verses 19 and 20. Paul says this, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. Now, the first thing to see, by the way, who is the offspring he's talking about? That's Jesus, right? So the law has a purpose, here we go, only until Christ comes. Okay, that's what he's saying. And we're going to get to that next week. It only has a purpose until Christ comes. After Christ comes, it, it, its purpose is fulfilled. So that's the first thing. But now I need to cover the rest of these two verses, which is not going to be easy. He says this, talking about the law, he said it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, if that does that sound like a really odd statement? Okay. By the way, if you think, if you think it's odd, you're not alone. John Piper who is one of the men I respect most. And when I need help, I go and, and, and look at what does John Piper say about it. Okay, Because he is solid as a rock. This is what he said. First, a brief comment about the last half of verses 19 and verse 20. I'm not going to deal with it because I don't know what it means. If you would, I would be happy for anyone to give me insight. So when Paul says the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary, now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. John Piper says, i got no idea what Paul's talking about. So I'm not even going to cover it. Okay. Now, I, did, I didn't feel comfortable doing that. So I looked and researched and looked and researched. So here's the best. This is a very difficult piece of Scripture. Even the Greek is very difficult to translate what he's saying. So it's, it's been down throughout history. Scholars have had a real hard time with And again, I'm just talking about the area in purple. Everybody with me? Okay, so here's the best that we can do. That, that the law was ordained, arranged, or appointed, or administered by God through angels is a fact not recorded in Exodus. If you go back and you read Exodus, when God gave the law on Mount Sinai, there's no mention of angels being involved. Okay, that's the first thing. However, it was a well-known belief among Jews all the Jews believed that, that angels were somehow involved in the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. It seems to have been, you think, well, where did they get that from? Well, it seems to have been derived from a couple of scriptures. Deuteronomy 33, 2 says this, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and He came with 10,000 of saints. 
Some translations say 10,000 angels. From his right hand came a fiery law to them. So this seems to say in some way that when he came to give the law, that he came with angels. Everybody kind of see that? Again, this is, this is very difficult to understand, but this is, seems to be where the Jews got it. Um, Psalm 68, 17. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. So in other words, he's got all these angels. He's got all these. He talks about the chariots of God are 20,000, thousands of thousands, and the Lord is among them as he was in Sinai. So everybody kind of see where he might, they might get this idea that angels were involved. Now, let me tell you this. It's mentioned three times that I know of in the Bible. Stephen said it. Everybody remember Stephen? He's getting stoned. As he's being, he said this, you received the law as ordained by angels and you didn't keep it. So Stephen is saying in some way angels were involved in the giving of the law. The writer of Hebrews says this, for if the word, talking about the Old Testament, the old law, for if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every sin and disobedience received a just reward. He's saying, how much more the word that comes through Jesus Christ? So even the writer of Hebrews says the word spoken through angels. Uh, Acts 7, uh, Paul Stephen says Acts in Acts 7.35 or 53, the law was ordained by, by angels. So it was very clear they believed it. And by the way, Paul believed it. Because he mentioned it today, didn't he? In, in this. So, so how this host of angels served God in the transmission of the law, we don't know. Okay, it was just something that they, the Jews felt like was in Scripture, and so uh, Paul believed it, uh, Stephen believed it, as the writer of Hebrews did. Um, but notice Paul also makes note of something else. He says, and it, talking about the law, was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now the intermediary here has got to be Moses. Right? Remember the people are down on the bottom of the mountain? Moses goes to the top of the mountain. God gives the law to Moses. Moses is the go-between. He's the intermediary. That's what a go-between is. So that's obviously referring to, to, to Moses, who stood between God and the Israelite people, right? So here's the point Paul seems to be making, as best we can tell. His point is the secondary and indirect transmission of the law as compared to the primary and direct revelation of the, promise, of, the, of the promise. In other words, God came down and met with Abraham himself, right? He gave it directly to Abraham. But when it came to the law, somehow God used angels and God used Moses to give the law to the people. Everybody see that? So that's kind of what he's saying. He's saying, even when you compare the two covenants, even when you compare the two things, the promise and the law, there, there, there's no comparison when it comes to how they were, were given. Okay, That seems to be what he's saying. So he's saying that the law is inferior even in the way it was given or delivered. Whereas the promises were introduced by direct revelation of the one God to Abraham, the law was given through angels and through an intermediary. So that's a difficult one to, to, um, to do, but that's the best we can do with that one. So, yes, questions? Can I ask... Um... I know Jews don't believe in 